This Spotlight podcast is sponsored by RSA Security. RSA offers business-driven security solutions that provide organizations with a unified approach to managing digital risk that hinges on integrated visibility, automated insights, and coordinated actions. RSA solutions are designed to effectively detect and respond to advanced attacks, manage user access control, and reduce business risk, fraud, and cybercrime. RSA protects millions of users around the world and helps more than 90% of the Fortune 500 companies thrive and continuously adapt to transformational change. For more information, go to rsa.com. Hello and welcome to the Spotlight edition of the Security Ledger podcast sponsored by RSA Security. I'm Paul Roberts, the editor-in-chief of the Security Ledger in this episode of the podcast. So in the U.S., I do believe there is a big gap. When we have that personal data, that information about us out there in the public or available to organizations that don't have the same requirements to protect and safeguard the information, that's a bit concerning. In just a couple of weeks, the California Consumer Privacy Act will take effect. Considered the most comprehensive data privacy law in the country, the CCPA could become a de facto federal standard. The law will be a wake-up call for many industries that have made a business of collecting, mining, and even reselling their customers' data. One industry that is unlikely to be phased by the new requirements, however, is healthcare. That's because a comprehensive patient data privacy law, HIPAA, has governed that industry for more than two decades. But the existence of a strong federal data protection law for patient health information doesn't leave the healthcare industry immune from controversies, risks, or questions about the extent of privacy protections, especially as a new generation of connected medical devices work their way into clinical settings and as data-hungry firms like Google look to expand their reach into the massive healthcare industry. To find out more about the unique challenges facing healthcare organizations, we invited Kevin Haynes, the chief privacy officer of the Nemours Foundation, a pediatric health provider that operates in six states and the District of Columbia. In this conversation, I talk with Kevin about how the role of chief privacy officer is changing and adapting to the unique threats and challenges facing healthcare organizations. To start off, I asked Kevin to tell us a little bit about Nemours and also about the role of chief privacy officer and what that entails. My name is Kevin Haynes. I am the chief privacy officer for the Nemours Foundation. And Kevin, tell us a little bit about what the Nemours Foundation is. Yeah, so we are a, um, a pediatric healthcare organization that services over 100 sites in six different states in the District of Columbia. Uh, we support over 8,000 employees, over 400,000 unique patient visits every year, uh, partnering with many different health systems, third parties, and the like. We're talking to you, Kevin, because you're a chief privacy officer. I think my listeners are probably more familiar, more used to hearing chief information security officers or chief security officers. So a good place to start, Kevin, might be to talk just a little bit about what is the the chief privacy officer or CPO role? What's entailed in that? My uh, son asked me the other day, uh, what do you do? (laughs) And he didn't really understand. And how do you explain to a nine-year-old what a privacy officer does? As a security officer, I could tell them easily, yep, I prevent people from hacking into systems. You know, I, uh, I make sure that people you know, have a, your login accounts and don't share their passwords. I'm simplifying it, obviously, but it's easy, right? But how do you explain to a child or to even to an adult in a lot of cases what a privacy officer does? Um, <laughs> and it's hard. I think you don't. <laughs> you know, I, it, it because, you know, Just say, 
I work at a hospital. <laughs> because it's more, you know, because that's what people associate privacy with. Right? If you talk about privacy, oh, you healthcare, you know, you're HIPAA. Eh, a little more than that, but yes. Um, uh, we are in the privacy role essentially focused on you know, the collection, the access, the use, uh, retention, disclosure, and disposal of the information that is entrusted to us. Doing this while maintaining compliance with any regulatory rules and obligations. So at Nemours, our job is to really ensure that we have all those tools, all those systems, and especially the knowledge in place to help protect that information, safeguard it. My idea is I, I don't use the word healthcare or PHI or PI and many of the things that those buzzwords that are typically associated with privacy, but it's more than that. So we focus on information and information, whether it be for an individual or the organization. And um, so daily, you know, we focus thing on things like normal that you expect. You know, we are focused on risk, uh, mitigating that risk, monitoring for any violations that occur. Uh, and also for the use of the information. Um, now I have no empirical evidence at all, uh, but I would surmise that most people associate privacy with some sort of legal or regulatory action. In fact, you'll probably see most CPOs having a legal background. I do not. My formal education is in accounting. Uh, my professional career has always been in technology and now privacy. But the vast, I guess, uh, majority of our work is not on a legal or regulatory front. It's actually on the front lines. It's talking to the people. It's working with all the different all the different departments in the organization to uh, develop the tools, develop the processes necessary to help safeguard any information that's out there. You've worn both the CISO hat and the CPO hat. Just talk about the difference in those two roles and uh, you know what the CPO role really requires of you, maybe differently from the chief security officer role. As a CISO, or in that role as a security officer and a professional, I did not have the opportunity to, to speak to a lot of families, patients and families. And so as you work with people, especially those that are coming to see us in some of the most tense and stressful times, you really get the feeling, you understand really what it means when something happens. Not only is there a child suffering from some condition or trying to recover from something, but they've all now also got to worry about their information getting out and how that can be used against them. That's a, it's really humbling to that degree where you hear hmm. the stories and you, and you, know, you have to work with multiple areas. It could be law enforcement, uh, family services for abuse and um, you know, neglect cases. And um, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's not, it's yeah. kind of hard not to, not it's, to, it's, hard it's to intimate work, right? Really it is it, healthcare itself is and, it yeah. is. and it adds an element to our, our work and privacy that I didn't see really in the technology side. You want to, you try to, and, um, but it really didn't, didn't resonate until I got those experiences working directly and talking directly to families. You're listening to a Spotlight podcast sponsored by RSA Security. RSA offers business-driven security solutions that provide organizations with a unified approach to managing digital risk that hinges on integrated visibility, automated insights, and coordinated actions. RSA solutions are designed to effectively detect and respond to advanced attacks, manage user access control, and reduce business risk, fraud, and cybercrime. RSA protects millions of users around the world and helps more than 90% of the Fortune 500 companies thrive and continuously adapt to transformational change. For more information, go to rsa.com.
If you're to talk about some of the threats or challenges for health providers, healthcare providers, uh, what are they? I mean, what what's top of mind for you and, and other CPOs? As a privacy officer, we are mostly focused on and worried about you know, information in general and, and personal information about someone is the focus. But uh, we also look at corporate information, which can be just as harmful um, in the long run. So we, we have developed um, a risk-based approach. Now, risk and privacy have not really gone together over the years. So at Nemours, uh, I recognize this from my background that having an, an accurate and good idea what risks exist to privacy is important. So over the years, we developed a, a risk-based approach to our program uh, using many of the same models that are out there from, you know, whether it be business or technology or security, whatever it may be. But we modified it to support privacy and information and information protection. So we look at the same things you do, external internal threats. We look at, you know, what the potential impacts are, both from reputation and cost. And we have developed a model to look at that. One, one thing we're hearing a lot about these days is, is ransomware attacks on both healthcare organizations and third parties, uh, hosted application providers and so on. As a chief privacy officer, d- do ransomware, does that constitute a privacy breach, even though in theory they're just encrypting the data and, and you know not stealing it as far as we know? But do you look at that uh, as a privacy breach that warrants um, some kind of uh, notice out to patients and and, uh, actions on your part? I'm going to give everyone's favorite answer. It depends. (laughs) It depends. Right. We we have not experienced a ransomware attack here. um, What we have experienced are third parties that have been victims. And HHS and the Office for Civil Rights, who is our enforcement agency, has provided guidance about ransomware and what to look for. The big key for us is, you know, when you perform a breach risk assessment, which is different than the security, so we're looking at whether or not a breach has occurred. Let me back up. It's whether or not a reportable breach has occurred. Information may have been given out, but it may not be reportable. So what does that mean? Is that what we're looking for is whether or not that particular ransomware not only encrypted the data, but did it also somehow exfiltrate it? Did it leave the organization? Based on our understanding of what how the ransomware works. Right. We are, as a healthcare organization, required to prove that a compromise of that information did not take place. So we look at all the logs. So another area that we work together on is log management, audit logs. We want to make sure that not only are we capturing log in, log out capabilities in certain systems, we want to make sure, we want to see what the attacker accessed. So if we're thinking of uh, maybe some common areas of attack, like web websites, right? There may be, going back to my security history and thinking of incidents there, where someone may have obtained someone's credentials, right? Logged in from a web interface to gain access to uh, information. If the logs are definitive and saying, you know, this person went to these four different URIs, um, can we actually uh, state that those locations in that web app did not contain personal information? If we can say that, no breach occurred because there was no access, inappropriate access to information. But if the logs are not complete, we can't say that, then that might be uh, you know, grounds for a reportable incident. It depends. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> Privacy in the United States is, is, is in a fledgling state. <laughs> um, it's very much a toddler still. 
still trying to grow and define itself and you know learn the world. As it's interesting to watch coming from the security where I grew up you know, in banking and international finance and got to experience over many years, you know, different industries that already had protections in place, watching the US grow in this area. And I recommend that security professionals that are out there, even those not in healthcare, but especially those in healthcare, take a close look at the resolution agreements that the Office for Civil Rights posts for healthcare data breaches and the fines levied against them. Resolution agreements and monetary penalties. Severino, who's the new director for the OCR, has done a fantastic job giving really good, relevant, timely information to us that need it in order to kind of understand what the government is looking for in enforcing protections. Uh, the last resolution agreement, 2.2 million um, against Centara Health, is a good example of something that isn't necessarily fully about a security incident, but more about privacy, breach, and breach notification. So it was not a necessarily a technology hack or one of those sexy items that occur at get the news articles. It was a miss a mailing that went awry, billing statements. And it was 577 individuals that were impacted. And the information that the OCR provided for that resolution agreement is, is really telling about the new philosophy that it appears the OCR is taking. Specifically, let me just add this to the conversation, is that the OCR mentioned in their release that Centara Health inappropriately analyzed or assessed the risk of the breach, thinking that a breach was not reportable if there was only a name, an address, and an, or, uh, and an organization name, and it did not have any medical, specific medical information in the statement, that that would not be considered a reportable breach. Well, part of this resolution agreement stated that they incorrectly analyzed the breach. Therefore, the minimum amount of information they needed was just a name, an identifiable person, and any information. <laughs> you know, the name mm -hmm. organizations all really needed to con constitute a reportable breach. Now that may change how many organizations apply a breach risk assessment to our privacy evaluations. Really lowers the bar on what, what a breach it, is. It sets the foundation really low. It does. One of the things that's interesting is healthcare is pretty much the only sector of the U.S. economy. Obviously, it's a huge part of the U.S. economy, but the only one that has a comprehensive privacy rule. You know, that said, HIPAA now is is more than 20 years old, and obviously, the way that healthcare is provisioned and delivered to people and the technology involved has changed tremendously in that time. Do you feel like HIPAA is a good framework for dealing with privacy comprehensively, or are there limitations uh, to HIPAA that maybe allow uh, healthcare organizations to feel like, well, we're, we're doing everything HIPAA asks, but leaving themselves exposed in some way? I have what I have to work with, right? And I'm a, you know, as private professionals, we are advocates, not just for ourselves as an organization, right? But for all stakeholders. Um, in our company, in, in Nemours, for instance. So we consider our stakeholders, the ones that we are focused on, our patients, our families, our, our vendors and partners that we work with because they entrust information to us and we share information with them as well, um, as well as um, our own internal documents, our own internal information. So when you think of privacy, it's really focused on you know, that personal side, that individual side of it. And HIPAA does a good job from a healthcare perspective at protecting that information. So what I 
am required to do for someone's PI or really PHI and the protected health information is different than what a marketing company or a you know, company like Google or Facebook, what they need to do with that same information. So in the U.S., I do believe there is a big gap, not from a healthcare perspective necessarily, but across the industry, all industries, when we have that personal data, that information about us out there in the public or available to organizations that don't have the same requirements to protect and safeguard the information, that's a big concern. Mm -hmm. So for healthcare, we do have those strict rules and they're defined and detailed. And in fact, where HIPAA may not have enough protections for certain types of information, our states actually fill in those gaps in a lot of areas. Uh, as an example, you know, we are a pediatric organization. Uh, states do allow minors to make their own healthcare decisions and also protect disclosure of that information to, uh, to, their, to maybe guardians, parents, and others. In addition, even if you are a, an adult or not, certain records like your behavioral health records, psychology or therapist information is also even further protected from disclosures or sharing between others. So you look at a federal law that's comprehensive and good for general health information, then states go even deeper. We've mentioned a few, but also genetics is another very important one. Many more states are going to genetic protections, uh, geolocation, device, and information collection there. So it goes to a certain point for us in healthcare, but we also have services in other parts of our organization that may not completely apply to the PHI perspective but applied to more of PI, personal information. So it probably could do more in regulating and enforcing um, protections for non-health or medical-related information. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, um, know, HIPAA aside, that states are going their own way on privacy in the absence of a comprehensive, you know, GDPR-like federal data privacy law. Obviously, uh, Nemours is an organization that operates across state lines. As a chief privacy officer, how do you juggle that? Um, And are you in a position of having to interpret and kind of assimilate multiple different state-level privacy regulations? We try across the entire organization, the enterprise, to have a consolidated universal policies and procedures for individual items. We will try to apply the, the most restrictive permission. So it's kind of like an access control list, right? So we're not looking for the uh, least restrictive, we're looking for the most restrictive uh, in those areas. And we apply that. Now, we do have exception processes and ways to evaluating individual states to make sure that if we need to have something accomplished, need to do something um, that is beneficial to Nemours and our families, then um, then we do have ways in which to to go outside and provide exceptions to certain rules. And we're also, we do a good job at, in my opinion, we do a really good job at um, ensuring that we are meeting both the intent or the, what, what our families want us to do to help protect their information, but also to uh, balance the clinical needs. You know, we, we recognize that information is vital, critically important to successful care, um, sharing it, going across it. And a good example of this is um, lately we used the Ascension Google partnership where they shared their, they gave the, you know, the, have a relationship with Google to help develop 
artificial intelligence to maybe identify better treatment plans for specific conditions. Yeah, that was very controversial though. It was, right? And so I think a lot with privacy, it goes back to that first one of the points we made earlier, which is that privacy is a philosophy. It's a feeling. And so out of the, you know, I have been an assistant health patient in the past. So I saw it as because I'm knowledgeable and I know about it. You know, I kind of looked at the the details and kind of what I was reading in the news reports. I was like, oh, well, this makes sense. If I go in again, I will be able to get better care because they may find something that they didn't know before. But balance that with what someone may feel about that, right? So do I want Google to have my genetic information or details from my elbow surgery I had three years ago? I don't know if they need that. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that th- that was hugely controversial and, you know, there were many different responses to that. But if I had to sum them up or, or talk about what the what the thrust of the responses was, it was kind of hell no, you know, or, or oh, good grief. You know, now Google's got our health records, which I think reflects the fact that there is a lot of skepticism out there in the public, you know, again, absent uh, strong federal uh, data privacy protections about what comes companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook are doing with our data. And you can look at that Ascension release and wonder if the net effect is really undermining the public's faith in these large technology companies to manage their data in a way that is pro-social and ethical. It's trust, right? Establishing trust. Yeah, I mean, if you want to put a word to it. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, uh, yeah, so you know, how do you establish trust? How do you ensure trust, right? And when you hear the word Google and lots of information, you've already, for years, have heard how Google uses our information to place ads. And you know, obviously, they automatically know that we are shopping for you know, new couches. And so we have a furniture supplier now popping up on our ads on our search engine. <laughs> you know, how do they know that? Well, are they, you know, the question is, are, do they intermingle the data? Do they put it all together? And because I'm in the know, it's like, you know, we call it the curse of knowledge, right? In the healthcare world, having the curse of knowledge from inside, you could easily say that, hey, that was normal. This is normal stuff. This happens, you know, may not be with Google, could be with other people, may not be 40 million people, maybe 2 million or a million or four. <laughs> but it's just that idea that there's all this data it's a company that already kind of people are a little bit skeptical of. So what are they really doing with it? Not fully understanding how it works. So we try, and we, I'm sure there's area for improvement for us, but we try to be very transparent and very open with our, our patients and families. We don't mince words. We don't obfuscate or hide things that we are doing. We will announce them. We put them on our notice of privacy practices, which is uh, required by federal law but is, it really is our promise. This is our contract with people and their information. So we will tell you what we're going to do with it in that document. And not just that, we will try to find ways to make that document easily read, understandable, written in a way that um, isn't confusing, to make sure that people understand what we're doing with their information. I think we do a really good job of that. Uh, and there are areas that we need to improve in, but we do a good job. So, I mean, one of the one of the challenges I think healthcare organizations are really having now, really all organizations, Kevin, is around managing third party risk. Uh, we see 
so many cases where third-party service providers, contractors, application providers are the source of harmful data breaches. How do you guys at Nemours handle that given the number, sheer number of third parties you have to deal with? So as, as most organizations, we are risk-based. Um, and so we are lucky enough to have a very robust tool, a GRC tool, governance risk and compliance tool, to help us manage that. So and we use Archer, RSA Archer GRC, to help us navigate not just the third-party risk, but many of our areas. Um, in fact, it is our primary tool for our privacy and compliance in general. So as you can imagine, you know, uh, we have relationships with lots of third parties, vendors, contractors, other healthcare systems, research institutions, so on and so forth. So our team has developed within Archer an automatic process to monitor for new third parties that are entered into our contract management system, which is different. We create individual, uh, for lack of a better word, tickets uh, for us to review and assess any potential privacy impacts to Nemours. So through our GRC tool, uh, we have developed questionnaires, uh, process, automatic notifications, and a regular process that gives us the ability to schedule not just the timing and the evaluations of vendors, but also to collect and capture what we're doing, the purpose of the relationship, the engagements that we have with them, and the information we're either sharing or receiving from them. It, it seems like companies have been doing third-party tracking for a while, but maybe more at the sort of checkbox compliance level. You know, you get a you get a list of questions and you kind of fill them out and send them back. But people are really looking at it now as, no, you know, we, we got to really pay attention to actually what we're saying on these and, and what we're doing about the information we're collecting. That's right. Um, and also to understand, you know, when we do have an event or have a reported incident by a third party, uh, we have the ability to go to an archer, see what our vendor has, uh, that third party has of ours, what information, the type of information, and we can quickly assess whether or not we in privacy need to become more involved because we know not just who they are, the contacts, we also know what they're getting from us to individual data elements, which is important in that assessment process. What we've noticed also is that I can speak Archer specifically, their model for feeding information to and from the system is, is wide open. So I can really get data from anywhere. And so I work with our, um, we have a privacy monitoring application we use. So we get data from that. We get data from our contract management system, employment office, our HR department, our HR information system, our learning management system. So I can get information from many different areas that we use to assess and evaluate and track um, all the work that we do. You know, another area that I've recognized that could be very helpful for the security and privacy collaboration going forward is that many of the items that have traditionally been for the U.S. focused on security can also be applied to privacy. And a good example of that is when you're looking at the new offerings by third-party risk management uh, assessment vendors, they have a focus on security profiles. You know, is this company at risk of having a breach or have they had a breach due to technical controls, right? Who are they using for their, for their third parties? Who are our fourth parties? Those are um, important to understand, but there's also an element of those that should also be focused on privacy. Let's think about GDPR for, for as an example. You all may notice as you're going through your websites, all the cookie announcements. We collect cookies. We collect information. Well, that's actually a, a tracking 
mechanism that the GDPR helps protect against. So things that we like to ask also on the privacy side is, does this organization comply with their own privacy policies that they've stated on their web? Uh, do they have a, a certification like trustee or others that actually provide you the privacy checkbox? And do they comply with not just the frameworks that involve security, CIST, CSF, SIGs, et cetera, but do they also comply with the privacy provisions under GDPR and others? So as you look at notice and consent and you know, acceptance of cookies and do not track, that's an area that can really be an advancement for that collaboration to security and privacy to really take advantage of this economy. Kevin Haynes of Nemours Healthcare, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. You're very welcome. I always look forward to the opportunity to share privacy and its role with anybody. Thank you. You've been listening to a Spotlight podcast sponsored by RSA Security. RSA offers business-driven security solutions that provide organizations with a unified approach to managing digital risk that hinges on integrated visibility, automated insights, and coordinated actions. RSA solutions are designed to effectively detect and respond to advanced attacks, manage user access control, and reduce business risk, fraud, and cybercrime. RSA protects millions of users around the world and helps more than 90% of the Fortune 500 companies thrive and continuously adapt to transformational change. For more information, go to rsa.com.